Well, again, good morning, Grace Bible Fellowship. And as I said in our prayer, we're in uh, Matthew chapter 3 this morning. We're going to cover verses 1 to 12, and we've called this message the preparation for Messiah. The preparation for Messiah. Now, so far in this Gospel, Matthew has shown us that Scripture was fulfilled in the birth and the early life of Jesus and His family. The genealogy of the kingly line of Joseph, the virgin conception, the visit of the wise man, the massacre of Herod, the flight to Egypt and return to Nazareth, all of those showed us that Scripture was fulfilled. When Matthew says that something was fulfilled, he doesn't always mean the, the way that we think of it as a, that a direct prediction was, was fulfilled, that something was predicted and then happened exactly like that. But often what he means is that in the person of Jesus, the, the one who that section of Scripture was talking about uh, has been fulfilled, that, that He has come, that He has arrived. And we've seen over and over that Jesus is the promised Messiah, that He is God with us, Emmanuel, the one who will rule Israel and the world in fulfillment of God's covenant promises. And we have a lot of anticipation built up to this point in the gospel. We want to meet this Jesus. We've, we've heard the claim over and over again that he is the one that fulfills the messianic prophecies. But all that we've actually seen of Jesus is that he was born and so we want to see Him. And the Gospel now is going to continue to keep us in suspense, at least through this section today. And what we're going to see is we're going to meet the One now who prepared the way for Jesus. We're going to hear what John the Baptist had to say about Him. We're going to look at, like I said, Matthew chapter 3, 1-12. to And we're going to d- divide the text into four sections today. We would call it uh, maybe four aspects of John's preparation for the Messiah. And in verses 1 to 2, we're going to see John's message. Then in verses, uh, or just verse 3, and, and again, quoting from Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 3, we're going to see John's mandate. Then we're going to see John's manner in verse 4 of our text. And then in verses 5 to 12, we're going to see the ministry of John, John's ministry. And that's going to be broken up into three subpoints. We're going to see his ministry to the regular people, verses five and six, how they received him. Then we're going to see John's ministry to the religious hypocrites in seven to ten. And finally, we're going to see John's ministry to the remarkable Lord, his proclamation of Jesus Christ, the coming one in verses eleven and twelve. And so let's begin this morning by first looking at John's message in verses one and 2 of Matthew chapter 3. Matthew 3 and verse 1 says, In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John the Baptist was a pretty remarkable figure in the days of Jesus. The Jewish historian Josephus wrote about him and his baptism and about the revival that happened under his ministry. As Christians, we tend to focus on the ministry of Jesus and the apostles, and rightly so, but John was a remarkable figure. He was the last and the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 11, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, 
there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Up until that point of all of human history, Jesus says, among those born of women, there wasn't anyone greater than John the Baptist. The only people who would then be excluded from this, this, this greatness of John would be Jesus who pre-existed uh, His birth as God. Jesus was existent eternally before He was incarnated and came into this world. And the only other person who could possibly be an exception to this would be Adam who wasn't born of a woman. Adam, our first representative in the garden. And so John was an amazingly significant figure. He was called the Baptist because of his unique baptism. And we're going to look at his baptism in verse 6. John was a baptizer and a preacher. It says, in those days, John came preaching. He came preaching. That word preaching there is an important word and this is the first time that we've seen it in, in, in Matthew or even as a church, at least with me here. The, the word there, preaching, is, is really important to our theology of preaching and what we try to do in the preaching of God's Word. The, the Greek word is keruso, and it means to proclaim, to preach. But the one who proclaimed something in this way was always an official herald of a ruler or of a king. And the herald was an official position, uh, someone whose job it was to bring public announcements on behalf of a ruler. And the herald would take the message given to him by his employer, and he would go out and proclaim it publicly. The herald himself then had no authority or importance, except that he would bring the message from the king. The herald would not create the message, he would only proclaim the message. And so heralds were expected to proclaim what the ruler had given them. Nothing more, nothing less. The, the, this word then, Caruso, and the noun is K-Rux, herald, proclaimer, preacher. It's not the only word in the New Testament for preaching, but it's really an important word, one of the most important ones. This word really informs much of what we believe about preaching. I can't just come up here and say whatever I think about a topic or a text. I, I, it's not my job as a preacher, as a herald, to make up the message. My job is to take the message that God Himself wrote through His Word and then to proclaim it to you. And so whether I'm preaching a topic or whether I'm preaching through a text of Scripture, my goal is to say what God said. I try to help you see from the text itself that what I say is really what God says. And we do this so that we can hear God speak through His Word. We don't want to hear me speak. We want to hear God speak. And the way that God speaks is through His Word. And so everything about a sermon should be coming from the text. The choice of the introduction, the outline, the context, the explanation of words the and sentences and the, the syntax, the application to the hearers. Everything about a sermon should be coming out of the text. The exhortations that are given, the conclusion to the sermon should really all be driven from the text. And you should be able to see that what the text says is what the preacher is saying. And so everything in a sermon should be determined by the text itself. And if we do that, then the, the power and authority of God comes through the sermon. And so the preacher should take the Word of God and understand what God says in His Word, and he should explain it to God's people. He should 
illustrate the truth of the passage and show how it applies to the hearers and then exhort and encourage the hearers to obey God by responding appropriately to the message. And that's what I'm trying to do Sunday after Sunday. I want to be a herald of God's Word. I want to take God's Word and proclaim it to you. And that's exactly what John did. John took the message that God had given him and he heralded heralded it in the wilderness. Now, as a prophet, John received direct revelation from God. I don't have direct revelation from God, but I do have the, the revelation of God in His Word, the Bible, and then, and that's really all we need. God has given us all we need in His Word. And so we now come and we understand His Word and we proclaim the Word to you. And so John came as this herald figure in the wilderness of Judea. The wilderness of Judea was basically desert country. It's a, a west and north of the Dead Sea. The Jordan River kind of ran south through the, uh, the eastern part of Israel down into the Dead Sea. And John's just up there by the Jordan, a little bit to the west of the Jordan River. And his message in this wilderness desert area was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now we've covered that in the last two messages in the, the two weeks before Resurrection Sunday. We looked first at the doctrine of repentance or the gospel of repentance and we looked at what repentance is and what it means. And then last, the, the week after that, we looked at the doctrine of the kingdom or the gospel of the kingdom and we talked about what the kingdom was and what the expectation of the kingdom was. John's message to Israel could be summarized by just this call for the nation to repent, to turn away from sin, to turn from sin and turn to God. That's that's basically what repentance is. It's a change of mind that regards sin differently and, and results then in a changed life. The reason for this call to repent was that the kingdom of heaven was at hand. And that means that it was near or that it had drawn near or it, it had uh, approached either either in space or in in time so so this word here means that something is near in space like when somebody approaches a city or something is near in time like when something is close to happening it's a it means it's about to happen or it's on the brink or it's close at hand and so John's message was that it's time to repent it's time to turn from sin because the kingdom is near. The kingdom is about to happen. The kingdom is close. Now, we, we went through a number of Old Testament scriptures last time we were in Matthew, and we saw that what the, the kingdom expectation was. The, the kingdom is basically the fulfillment of all of God's covenant promises to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. It was reiterated to uh, David. And so there's promises to David as the, the king, the, the ruler. And this, these promises were reiterated all through the Old Testament by the prophets. That's, and, and they spoke of a rule of the Messiah over all of creation, really centered on the throne of David and Israel and, and God ruling then through the Messiah over all of creation. And this rule, according to the Old Testament, would happen in conjunction with a national repentance. 
Even as early as Deuteronomy chapter 30, there's this prediction of a a repentance of Israel and a restoration of the nation. Leviticus 26, 40 to 46 speaks about that as well. We saw it in Hosea chapter 14 where at the end of Hosea, there's this call to repentance. And so John really comes and, and preaches the kingdom is at hand and it's time to repent. Those two things really go together. And so it was time for Israel to repent. That was John's message. Next, let's look at John's mandate in chapter 3 and verse 3. It says, For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Matthew tells us that John is the one Isaiah spoke about in the passage in Isaiah chapter 40. Let's, let's go ahead and turn in our Bibles to Isaiah chapter 40 and have a look at the context there. What we'll see here is who John is. He's the the voice crying in the wilderness. But even more, what we're going to see is who John was to prepare the way for. We we tend to know John from the Old Testament or from the New Testament as the one who prepares, prepares the way for Jesus, as the one who prepares the way for the Messiah. And he was that. But what we're going to see by looking at Isaiah is that the voice of one crying in the wilderness, according to Isaiah, actually prepared the way for Yahweh, for God himself. And so both John and Matthew are are testifying then to the deity of Jesus Christ, that he is God. The the quote from Matthew chapter 3, verse 3 comes from Isaiah 40, verse 3. And in its context here, this is a message of good news. Let's start at Isaiah 40 and verse 1, where there's this call to comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Here is comfort for my people. And God is the one speaking and He's calling somebody to comfort the people. And the reason for this comfort, this really double comfort, comfort, comfort my people, is the pardon for sin and the fact that the war has ended, that the, the Israel is no longer going to be in uh, battle, in war. The, the war has ended. My, my people would be Israel, Jerusalem, as we see in verse to there, Jerusalem is the capital city of Israel. And so we have this announcement of good news. And then we're introduced to the voice in verse 3. The voice. And the voice is not identified at all. But look, look at there, 40 verse 3. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. When a, an ancient Near Eastern king would travel, 
Often a, a road smoothing crew would prepare the way for the king and they would flatten the hills and straighten out the curves and the voice then acts like a herald crying out that the king is coming. And who is the king in verse 3? Who is the highway being prepared for? We'll look at it again in verse 3. It says, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And so the Lord is coming, Coming. that's capital L-O-R-D. And when you see capital L-O-R-D in your Bible like that, in your English Bible, that is trying to signal to you that this is the Hebrew word Yahweh. This is the, the covenant name for God. And so the Lord is the one who the way is prepared for. And the in the desert, the highway is, is made for our God. That's the, the Hebrew word Elohim. And so the, the, the pre- preparation here is for Yahweh Elohim. And whoever the voice prepares the way for then is Yahweh God. In verse 5, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has smoke, spoken. When the Lord, when Yahweh God comes in, the, the glory of Yahweh would be revealed and all flesh would see it. Now when we think about this a little bit, I'm, I'm not sure if Isaiah's readers would pick this up, but if the Lord was going to come and all flesh would see it and the glory of God would be revealed, what would happen? See, you remember when, when Moses asked, he said, Lord, can I see your glory? This is Exodus 33.18. You could just listen to that if you want, or you could turn in your Bible there. Exodus 33.18, Moses says, please show me your glory. And he's talking to the Lord, and, and he said, that is, the Lord replied back to Moses, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, or Yahweh, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for a man, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. And so God tells Moses here that nobody can see my glory, Moses, and live. No flesh can see the glory of God and survive. To see the glory of God directly would mean death to all flesh. And I think this points to this, this, the fact that all flesh are going to see the glory of the Lord. I think this points to the incarnation. That God would come in the veil of humanity so that His glory could be revealed without those who saw it dying. And that's exactly how Isaiah himself had seen the glory of the Lord in Isaiah chapter 6. Remember when Isaiah saw the Lord, uh, th- that was some kind of a, a pre-incarnate vision of Christ. And we know that from John 12.41. In John 12.41, John says that Isaiah saw his glory and spoke of him. And of course, that's in, that's John 12.41. And him in that context is Christ. And so John, the Apostle John, tells us that, that Isaiah saw Christ in that heavenly vision in Isaiah chapter 6. And so if we kind of put this together, we see that the voice prepared the way for God, 
but also that when God came, it would be in such a way that flesh could see the glory of God, that they could behold God and not die. And in hindsight, now, at least I don't know if Isaiah's readers would have been able to pick this up or if even Isaiah himself was fully aware of how this would would come about, but in hindsight, we know that this happens through the incarnation, that God the Son added to Himself a human nature and came to earth and revealed the glory of God. And so Isaiah, or sorry, uh, John the Baptist is preparing the way for God. And the preparation in Isaiah is pictured like road work to prepare the way for a king's path. But the illustration is just that. It's, it's an illustration. The straightening out of crooked ways and the leveling of even ground, uneven ground is an illustration of repentance. I heard MacArthur say once that the reason we know it's an illustration is that when John came, he didn't come with a bulldozer. He came preaching repentance. And so John's mandate, again, was to prepare the way for Yahweh, to, for, for God to come by calling Israel to repent. Repenting would, would clear the way not only to the salvation that, that is spoken about in Isaiah chapter 40, but also to the kingdom, which is really the focus of most of Isaiah chapter 40 to the end in chapter 66. That was John's mandate. And it shows us again that Jesus was no mere man, that He was God born into the world through the Virgin Mary. And so thirdly, let's look at John's manner. John's manner. Back to the book of Matthew. We're going to look at verse 4 here. Matthew 3 and verse 4. Now John wore a camel, a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. John preached in the wilderness of Judea, and this was, again, mostly uninhabited desert. Luke tells us that John was a Nazarite, and actually you could turn to the book of Luke chapter 1. Uh, as a Nazarite, John wouldn't cut his hair or shave his face. He drank no wine. He, he grew up in the wilderness. Luke chapter 1 and verse 13. This is a, an angel speaking to John the Baptist's father, Zechariah. And the angel said to him, Luke 1 13, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. The, uh, the Elijah thing there comes from Malachi 4, 5, and 6. The last two verses in the Old Testament, I, I'll just read it for you, Malachi 4, 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Verse 6, And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And so John was very much like Elijah. He was filled with the Spirit like Elijah. 
He came in the spirit and the power of Elijah. He called people to repent, to turn away from their sin like Elijah. He even dressed like Elijah. He wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. In 2 Kings, and uh, if you want, you could turn there with me, 2 Kings chapter 1. In 2 Kings chapter 1, King Ahaziah fell through his upper chamber lattice and, and so he kind of fell through the, the ceiling or the floor and uh, down into the next level. And so in his pain and sickness, he sent messengers to Ekron to inquire of Baal or Baal Zebub uh, to ask whether he would recover. And the Lord told Elijah to interrupt the messengers on the way. And so we'll read starting in verse 3 here. But the angel of the, of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Arise, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria and say to them, Is it because there is no God in Israel that you're going to inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron? Now therefore, thus says the Lord, You shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So Elijah went. The messengers returned to the king and he said to them, Why have you returned? And they said to him, there came a man to meet us. And he said to us, go back to the king who sent you and say to him, thus says the Lord, is it because there is no God in Israel that you are sending to inquire of Baalzebub, the God of Ekron? Therefore, you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. He said to them, what kind of man was he who came to meet you and told you these things? They answered him, he wore a garment of hair with a, le- a belt of leather around his waist. And he said, that is the king said, it is Elijah the Tishbite. And so Elijah wore a garment of hair. It's literally that he was the owner of hair or the master of hair. And some translations say that he was a hairy man. But I think it's more likely that he was the master, the owner of a garment of hair. And... uh he wore a belt around his waist, uh, and so he's he's wearing a, a hairy kind of cloak and a belt around his waist. And John the Baptist kind of picks up this same attire. Now, apparently, this was some kind of a, a prophetic at- attire, and and we we often see through Scripture people kind of wearing this this mantle. Remember, Samuel had his mantle, and Elijah's mantle seems to be this hairy garment that he wore. Zechariah thirteen and verse four says. On that day, every prophet will be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies. These are, these are false prophets here, and, and there's going to be shame for the false prophets in this, and the end days, Zechariah tells us. And it says, he will not put on a hairy cloak in order to deceive. And so it seemed like this kind of hairy garment was a, a prophetic mantle, and so people would put this on and give false prophecies. Zechariah is telling us that wouldn't happen anymore. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 37 says they were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword, they went about in sheepskins or skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. Of course, here speaking about true prophets, some of them wore sheepskins and goatskins, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And so John wore a, a, most likely a garment of, uh, well, John for sure wore a garment of camel's hair. Elijah, there's a possibility that he was just a hairy man, but 
More likely, he wore this garment as well. And so John's copying the, the dress of Elijah. And his food was locusts and wild honey. When you think about John's manner, here he is in the desert and he eats locusts and wild honey. Locusts were the only insect that Israel could eat uh, that, that was allowed by the law. And Israel was originally called the land flowing with milk and honey, right? And so, and so there's uh, wild honey and John's eating locusts and wild honey. And so in the same way that God provided for Elijah, in the drought, remember in the drought, the ravens came and fed Elijah and the widow provided for Elijah. In the same way that, that God provided for Elijah, God provided for John the Baptist in the wilderness. Now, if you can kind of get this picture, this would have been something to see, to see this man in a camel hair cloak with long hair and an unshaved beard and preaching a message of repentance, a strong message to turn away from sin. And John himself exemplified this message with his holy life. He was a man set apart for God. And he pointed people to the coming one, to Jesus Christ. And his message, though, was received differently by different groups of people. In verses 5 to 12, we kind of get a sense of how his ministry was received, as well as some insights into the nature of his ministry. And so we're going to call this then number four, John's ministry. This is from verses 5 to 12. As I said, John's ministry to the common people and, and to the religious hypocrites and to the coming one shows the results of his ministry. And so we could call these subpoints here. We could see John's ministry to the common people, to the con artists, and to the coming one. I think in the outline that I sent out the other day, I've got to the religious hip, or, or to the regular people, to the religious hypocrites, and then to the remarkable Lord. And so, first of all, look at John's ministry to the regular people, verses five and six. Here is the response for them. This is really truly amazing. Jerusalem and all Judea, not every single person, but people from the whole area, as well as from the whole area around the Jordan, they were coming to John. They made their way to John in the wilderness. This is before the days of social media, before telephones, before televisions, before newspapers are going around. This is word of mouth, and people are hearing about this prophet-like figure in the wilderness, and they're going out to hear the message. You, you can just kind of hear the, the, the chatter in the towns. Have you heard about John the Baptist, that, that preacher in the wilderness? He's a, a prophet. You know, God changed my life through this preacher guy in the wilderness that doesn't comb his hair. And so you can kind of get this sense of the, the, the community just kind of hearing about John and going out to see what is this thing all about. Verse five says, then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region around the Jordan were going out to him and they were baptized by him in the, in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. This is what we would typically call a revival, not a special meeting where with a, at a preset time, but a special work of God bringing people to saving faith, turning them away from their sins. John preached in the wilderness and God, God drew people and awakened them to their sin and they drew near to God through John. They came confessing their sins. And that word there to confess is an intensified form of the normal word for confession. And they, they came to John in the wilderness and they publicly confessed their sin. At least they confessed it 
to John. And they acknowledged that they had sinned. They admitted that they were sinners. And they received baptism. Now John's baptism is not something that that had been practiced before. At least not something that was practiced for the Jews or on the Jews. It's not something that's prescribed in the Old Testament. This is something that it seems that the Lord had revealed to John. There was a, a similar practice, not maybe, maybe not identical, but at least similar for Gentiles who were converted to Judaism. You know, if, if I was a, a worshiper of Diana or one of the Gentile religions and I wanted to follow Yahweh in the Old Testament, uh, I would, the, what would happen is the Jews would baptize me on, on my profession of, of faith in Yahweh. They would baptize me by immersion to symbolize the cleansing of my old ways and the cleansing of my old life and my becoming now a worshiper of Yahweh. But this kind of baptism, as far as we know, was never practiced on Jews until the days of John. The, the Jews, by virtue of their Abrahamic descent, they thought they were okay. And so John's baptism then communicated to Israel that they were as bad as the Gentiles, that they had no righteousness of their own to count on, and they too needed to repent and turn from their sins. Now the word baptism isn't an original English word. It's actually a transliteration from the Greek word, which most scholars, most people accept that the word means and meant to immerse. To immerse. The, the word has a long history of being transliterated into English. And instead of being translated as immersed, it was, it was just transliterated. They, they made the, the baptizo in, in Greek kind of sounds like baptism. And so they kind of just brought the word into English, made up a new English word, but didn't translate the meaning of the word. And the reason for that is likely because of the influence of infant baptism on the Catholic Church. And so they didn't want to kind of shake up that um, that influence. And, and of course, even the early reformers were, most of them were baptizing infants. And so they just transliterated this word into English instead of translating it. But really, this is John the Immerser. And he was immersing people in water. But John the Immerser doesn't have the same ring as it does. And so we continue to call him John the Baptist. At least I've never seen an English translation that actually goes ahead and translates this. But if you go ahead and you take the word immersed and you replace it every time you see baptized in your New Testament, you would have a better sense of the meaning there. And so John is in the Jordan River. He's immersing people in water as they come confessing their sins. This was a a pre-Christian baptism, but it became really the model and the basis for Christian baptism as, as we see in the end, and in the Great Commission at the end of the Gospel. Remember again, the Great Commission, go and therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Matthew doesn't really say much about Christian baptism throughout the Gospel. He just kind of assumes that we're going to do that as part of making disciples. But the Christian baptism really kind of takes its, um, takes its heritage, takes it, takes it from John, this, this baptism of repentance 
for towards conversion, towards the forgiveness of sins, and, and Christians kind of took this up according to the word of the Lord and then baptized those who were genuinely saved, who had turned away from their sins and, and come to Christ. And so in our disciple-making process, we're to baptize. And this baptism really is a picture then of our salvation. Because in the same way that we are uh, saved and immersed and, and received the Holy Spirit, joined to Jesus Christ in that same way, baptism kind of pictures that salvation that we've received. Now, in Acts chapter 19, there's an, an interesting account that I want to show you. And so turn in Acts chapter 19 and verse starting at verse 1, it says it happened there that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus, and there he found some disciples. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with a baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about twelve men in all. And so John's baptism pointed towards faith in Christ. So when these disciples of John came to faith in Christ, Paul then baptized them as genuine believers. Now they received the Spirit at that point, which kind of seems a little bit strange to us, but we need to remember that there's multiple comings in, of the Spirit in the book of Acts as the Gospel is kind of confirmed as it advances from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and then even beyond to the Gentile world. And so when people confessed their sins and repented, John would baptize them as a sign of that repentance. But John would not baptize everyone who came to him. If he saw signs of an unrepentant heart, he would not baptize that person. And so we've seen that many of the regular people came to be baptized, but now we see the response of the religious hypocrites in verses 7 to 10. So the, to the, John's ministry to the religious hypocrites, starting at verse seven, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able to, from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. The Pharisees and the Sadducees were coming to John's baptism, but it doesn't seem like they were coming in the same way as the regular people. They don't seem to be confessing their sins. They don't seem to be repentant. They, they come to his baptism not even to be baptized. It seems that they are just curious. They just want to see what's going on. And this kind of fits with what we'll see later in the Gospel, Matthew 21. We see that the Pharisees and the scribes and the chief priests did not receive John's baptism really because they didn't think they needed to repent. Matthew 21 and 23, when 
Jesus entered the temple. The chief priests and the elders of the people came to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? Matthew 21, 24, Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question. And if you tell me the answer, then I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, where did it come from? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. And so they answered Jesus, we do not know. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Then Jesus tells them a parable in verse 28. What do you think? A a man had two sons and he went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, the, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterwards change your minds and believe him. Then he tells another few parables. And in verse 45, when the chief priests and now the Pharisees heard this parable, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And so again, the chief priests and the Pharisees did not believe John, and they did not, at least as a general group, they did not receive his baptism. They believed, again, with very rare exception, they believed that they were righteous and that they had no need of repentance. The Pharisees, uh, their name came from the uh, Hebrew word most likely meaning separatists. They were known for their rigorous law-keeping, which included also their oral traditions, which which they added really to the law, and they, they called it a fence around the law. And so they had extra laws to keep them away from breaking the law. At least that's how they worked in their minds. They were they held these oral laws on the same level as Scripture. <coughs> they were always concerned about the outward appearance and not so much concerned about their actual hearts. To them, hatred was no problem as long as they didn't murder. Adultery as well uh, in their heart was fine as long as they didn't visit prostitutes. They, they didn't even mind getting a divorce so that they could remarry to fulfill their lusts. They were hypocrites. They were proud and, and they prided themselves on their external righteousness, but their hearts were actually quite far from any real love for the Lord. The Sadducees aren't as familiar to us, they, they ceased being a group around 70 AD when the Romans destroyed the temple. They uh, wouldn't believe any doctrine that could not be proved from the five books of Moses, from the Torah. And, and they, they didn't accept the, the writings of the prophets or the what they call the writings, the Psalms, Proverbs, and, and the other scriptures, only the five books of Moses. They were more liberal in their religious views. They weren't so strict about the the keeping of the law, and they made peace with the Roman government. But really, they were they were leaders of the temple, and together the Pharisees and the scribes would have really only been a small part of the nation. But they would have they they would have been the the two groups from which the Sanhedrin, the the religious, the the supreme court of Israel, would have been drawn from. 
Now, when John the Baptist sees these guys coming to his baptism, he really pulls no punches. Few would tolerate somebody like John today. You know, we're not okay with anything that resembles a broad brush. He really calls all the scribes and Pharisees hypocrites. You know, you can imagine the outrage against John. You can't say all Pharisees are a brood of vipers. You know, what kind of prophet calls people by such names? He, he thinks all Sadducees are under the wrath of God. And you can kind of see the, the, the way that people would respond to somebody like John. But John is more concerned about people's eternal souls than he is about being liked. You see, John understood that the false religious systems of the Pharisees and the Sadducees kept people in bondage and in subject to the wrath of God. These people needed to be exposed for the frauds that they were. John recognized them as evil. He says, you brood of vipers. He knew they remained under God's wrath. He says, who warned you to flee the wrath to come? He knew that their lives bore no fruit. And he says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. He knew that they needed to repent and be baptized, though they themselves denied it. They were relying on their spiritual pedigree as children of Abraham rather than on God. They thought to themselves, we, we are fine. We, we don't need to repent. And all of this is really very similar to people who grow up in Christian or, or even so-called Christian homes. They keep certain rules, whatever those rules might be. They follow their traditions, whatever those traditions are. They think they're going to escape God's judgment by some connection that they have to their religion, but they have never truly repented. Inwardly, they still love their sins even if they keep their laws. And to such people, the language of verse 10 should really make us tremble. Matthew 3.10, Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. This is the language of imminence. Even now, the axe is already laid. The axe is now laid at the root of the, the, root of the tree and it's ready to swing. Every tree, there is no escape. Every tree, there's not going to be a single fruitless tree that escapes. In verse 8, we saw the command to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. In verse 10, every tree that does not bear good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. The only escape is true repentance that leads to good fruit. And fire is a metaphor, an illustration of hell. And so John just basically tells these religious hypocrites that they are going to go to hell unless they repent. Friends, sometimes sinners should be wooed with the joys of heavens, but at other times, the right medicine is to warn them of the fires of hell. There is a hell reserved for those who will not or do not turn from sin. You can be very religious and yet be unrepented. You can be very religious, keep all of your laws and traditions and end up in hell. Your religiousness won't save you from the wrath of God. Salvation in Christ alone and to come to Christ and turn from sin, not merely in external works, but in the hidden person of your heart, that's the only way to escape the wrath of God by coming to Christ in truth. 
Now, I don't know how to warn you sufficiently except to ask God to reveal to you that you are the tree that at your feet ready even right now to cut you down and, and cast you into hell is it, God Himself is there with the axe. Christ Himself, we're going to see in a minute, is the one who holds the axe, who is ready to cut you down and cast you into hell. And so I would say if you are hearing me now, turn from your sin, turn to Jesus Christ. He is the only escape from the fires of hell. And I, I'm fearful that there's many in our community who aren't genuinely born again, who who are much like these religious hypocrites. We must woo them and we must warn them and we must pray that God will work powerfully enough, that God will work amazingly through us so that they, like like John, even in the wilderness, that, that people would come and hear the true gospel and the true message of salvation. And so John warned because John heralded the message given him by the Lord. But he also spoke then of the coming one who would be even greater in, in both warning and in power, in ministry power and in, in worth of who he is. John spoke of the coming one and he spoke of the ministry of the remarkable Lord. And that's the third sub point here. John's ministry to the remarkable Lord. He, he proclaimed the Lord. Look at verse 11. He says, I, that is John, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. John contrasted his ministry with the ministry of the Lord who was coming. John's ministry was to prepare people to receive him. It's as though he says, you think my ministry is harsh or you think my, I'm something? Wait until you see the Lord. I'm not even worthy to carry his sandals. Now that's actually quite a, an amazing statement because to carry somebody's sandals was such a low job that even most slaves wouldn't have had to carry their master's sandals. But John's saying, I'm not even worthy of the lowest slave. He's saying that the one coming is so exalted, so lofty, so much mightier than himself that he's not even worthy to do the least task for him. It speaks to John's humility, but even more so to the exalted position of the Lord. John knew that he was preparing the way for the Messiah and that the Messiah was God in human flesh. John knew, as every one of us should know, that, that none of us are worthy to serve the Lord, that it's a privilege to be allowed to do the least thing for His sake. John baptized with water, but Christ would immerse with the Holy Spirit and fire. Baptism in the Spirit is really salvation language. And, and to be baptized with the Spirit means to really be saved. It means that the Spirit of God has immersed you into the body of Christ the church. It means that you are in Christ, that you are united to Him. And in Christ, all the blessings of salvation are found. 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 13 tells us that every Christian has been baptized into the body of Christ. That if you are saved, you have received the baptism of the Spirit. Again, 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says, For in one Spirit, 
We were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and were made, and all were made to drink of one spirit. All believers are baptized into the body of Christ. Again, this is a, a, a picture of our salvation that we are immersed into Christ, that we are joined with Jesus Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection, that our old life has died and that we are resurrected to new life. And then again, this is pictured in water baptism when we go under the water to picture our old life that we are dead to it now that we have turned away from that old life and that when we come up out of the water in our baptism we are picturing the the newness of life that we have in Jesus Christ and every believer has then been baptized in the spirit and then of course we're to be baptized in water as well to picture what God has done in saving us and so Christ John says, is the one who's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. Now, no mere prophet could baptize with the Spirit. And if we would have went in the Old Testament and kind of looked at the promises of the pouring out of the Holy Spirit and asked, who is it who pours out the Holy Spirit? I think we would have come to the conclusion that it was God Himself who pours out the Holy Spirit. And we would have maybe said, even if we had to pick one person of the Trinity, we might have said that it was the Father But now we see that this is the Son's special role, to be the one who baptizes in the Spirit. Christ is pictured then in verse 12 as threshing grain. And the the thresher, the way this worked was the thresher would throw the the whole wheat into the air and with a a winnowing fork. And and they would do this on a windy day and they would throw the wheat up into the air and the wind would blow the chaff away, but the wheat being heavier would fall down and be collected. And so the chaff would, would blow away into the wind, but the wheat would be gathered. The chaff was worthless and would be bundled and burned in a fire. The wheat is what the farmer actually wanted. And notice that in this picture in verse 12, this is a a word picture of Christ. And He owns, it says that it's His threshing floor. He owns the souls of every man. The world is the threshing floor and in it are wheat and chaff. And it says He will clear His threshing floor. John called the people to repent, but the coming one, He owns the world and He owns all the souls in it. Notice too that in that verse it says that the wheat is called his wheat. He will gather his wheat. The chaff belongs to him in as much as, as all of life belongs to him, in as much as it's his threshing floor. But in a special way, the wheat belongs to him. It's his wheat. And note it says he will gather his wheat. It doesn't say that he's going to try to gather his wheat. He's going to get as much wheat as he, as he can. You know, he's going to gather the wheat if the wheat is willing to be gathered. No, no, no. He will gather his wheat. And so this is quite a picture of the sovereign Lord threshing his wheat and, and gathering his grain into the barn. What a blessing it is to be one of his wheat, to be one of his people, to be one of his sheep gathered to be with him forever. This is the, the picture of a repentant person, of a saved person, of an elect believer baptized by the Lord in the Spirit. Such a one by grace will become willing and confess their sins and flee the wrath to come. But Christ has another baptism according to John, and this is a baptism with fire. 
Now, some see this as the same baptism, but the picture of fire from verse 10 and verse 12, these are fires of judgment. And so the baptism of fire is likely a a judgment as well. John warned that the axe was laid at the root of the tree. The unfruitful trees would be cut down and thrown into the fire. And here we see that the one holding the axe is actually Jesus Christ. He is the one who will burn the chaff with unquenchable fire. Jesus who died to pay the penalty for sins of those who will come to Him will also cast those who refuse to come into unquenchable fire. Look at it again in verse 12. But the chaff He will burn with unquenchable fire. Wow. Friends, the only way to be able to tell if you are wheat or chaff, the only way that I know of is by whether you come to Jesus Christ. John preached this message to everyone. He preached repent to everyone who would listen, and we should too. Charles Spurgeon once said something like this. He said, if sinners are going to go to hell, at least let them go through us. At least let, let them go through our pleas and with our arms wrapped around their legs. John's message was heralded. He proclaimed God's word. He proclaimed repent for the kingdom is near. John's mandate was to prepare the way for Yahweh God by proclaiming salvation. John's manner was otherworldly. He left the world behind to serve one so great that he saw himself as entirely unworthy to do so. And John's ministry was empowered by God. To the regular people, John brought the message of salvation to the religious hypocrites, God, John brought the message of their condemnation, very much like Paul who said to the one, the, the fragrance of life leading to the life, and to the other, the fragrance of death leading to death. To all, John brought the message of the remarkable Lord. Surely nobody can compare with Him. Now in this Gospel still, we haven't met personally, we haven't seen Jesus Christ, although we know that He was born Next week, we're going to actually be able to see Him. We've heard a lot about Him. Beginning next week, we're going to see Him and we'll see how He compares with what the prophets, including John the Baptist, said. This Jesus, this Savior, is both Savior and Judge. And so I want to leave you just with one final question. He is Savior and Judge. What will He be for you? Let's pray. Father, We thank You for the ministry of John the Baptist that prepared the way for the Lord. We thank You for the, the greatness of our Lord, the One who owns the threshing floor, the One who will gather His wheat into the barn. And we pray that You would gather the wheat, that You would save people through Grace Bible Fellowship, that You would save them from the fire to come, the unquenchable fire We pray that You would do a a mighty work just like You did through John, that You would bring people to salvation through us, that they might be delivered from the wrath to come. Help us. And Father, we pray for those who are hearing this message that You would convict them and convince them of sin and bring them to repentance, that they might be truly saved. We ask it for Your glory. In Jesus' name, Amen.